thank you to Spark, the presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's podcast miniseries on the entrepreneurial progress being made in some of the world's most vulnerable states. Spark is a Dutch NGO that bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship in fragile and conflict-ridden regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. This podcast features two separate conversations I had with senior executives working for the Islamic Development Bank. While both interviews were relatively brief owing to time pressures on the day of recording, both chats yielded intriguing insight into the values, investment outlook, and business MO of the world's preeminent provider of Sharia-compliant development finance. Joining me for the first part of this episode is the director of the Africa and Latin America Department at the Islamic Development Bank. Stay tuned to hear him explain what distinguishes them from other leading development institutions like the World Bank and the African Development Bank. And listen in to learn more about some of the work they're doing to promote sustainable economic development within the organization's 57 member states. This podcast was taped at the fringes of Spark's sixth annual Ignite Conference, a premier gathering of refugees, entrepreneurs, educators, private sector actors, government leaders, academics, and NGOs. This is an independent African Tech Roundup production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting partner, Spark. My name is uh, Musa Silla. I am uh, director for Africa and Latin America Department at the Islamic Development Bank in Jeddah. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, sir. Thank you so much for hosting me. Now, I have so many curiosities about the nature and work of the Islamic Development Bank. Give us a sense of the scope of the the organization, the work you do, and perhaps what makes it distinct or perhaps similar to organizations we might uh, be more familiar with, such as the World Bank or the International Monetary Fund, etc. The Islamic Development Bank, uh, as uh, the name uh, connotes, uh, is uh, a development uh, finance institution, similar to the uh, World Bank or the African Development Bank. It is uh, headquartered in uh, Saudi Arabia in Jeddah, and it has been in existence uh, since uh, 1975. It is uh, composed of uh, 57 member countries, all of which are from the Southern Hemisphere. Majority of these uh, countries, about 48%, are based on the African continent. It is uh, basically engaged in financing uh, development in a project in its uh, member countries in all sectors uh, of priority to these countries, be it uh, infrastructure, agriculture, you know, health, you know, education, communication, uh, industry, etc. The difference uh, with uh, other institutions like uh, the World Bank and African Development Bank is that uh, the Islamic Development Bank is uh, an interest-free organization. As uh, the religion of Islam prohibits charging interest, the bank operates, you know, using other modes of financing, you know, rather than, you know, giving uh, loans and charging interest, you know, at the end of the day. So basically, you know, this is uh, the difference uh, with uh, other institutions. But otherwise, you know, we uh, finance uh, development, you know, projects that are of priority 
to the uh, member countries and that, that could have positive you know, impact on the lives of the people. Does that by default then give your organization a monopolistic advantage in the area of development finance? Well, it is not a monopolistic you know, advantage in the sense that the, the need for development finance is huge. The Islamic Development Bank alone cannot uh, do it in its member countries. You know, the needs of these countries are just uh, huge and cannot be met by the ISDB alone. So therefore, there is uh, ample opportunity for other actors, you know, to uh, take up, you know, development, you know, projects, you know, in these countries. But as uh, you may uh, have uh, kind of uh, felt, you know, the ISDB has got uh, kind of an appeal, you know, a good appeal, you know, within uh, the member countries, you know, for its financing. So give me an example of how member organizations interact with the bank and each other and perhaps how policy in each of these member states impacts the bank's operations. The bank interacts you know, with the member countries you know, looking at uh, you know, their development you know, strategies, looking at uh, their development you know, policies and also you know, looking at their priority development you know, projects you know, that they want you know, to be financed. This, you know, are taken into consideration against the bank's own uh, strategy for development, its own understanding about, you know, where it wants, you know, to, to intervene. And uh, once, you know, there is a convergence, you know, between these two, the Islamic Development Bank is ready to chip in to provide, you know, financing, you know, for, you know, the projects that is uh, being proposed by the, by the member countries. It may happen in situations, you know, where um, the project may be... Uh, a huge uh, project for which uh, the ISDB alone cannot provide, you know, all the financing, then, you know, there is room for partnership, you know, with uh, other organizations. Very frequently, we do joint financing with uh, the World Bank. We do joint financing, you know, with, uh, with the African Development Bank, etc., etc. I take the um, example of building a 1,000-kilometer, you know, road. You know, we may not be able to finance the entire stretch or the World Bank may not be able or willing to finance the entire stretch. So we can, you know, break that up, you know, into chunks, you know, um, whereby uh, each institution could finance a particular stretch and then put together, you know, the whole 1,000 kilometers, you know, will be, you know, will be realized. You know, this is uh, how we go about uh, partnering and uh, joint financing with uh, other institutions. Also taking into consideration that our modes of financing may be different. My next question was, what sort of compromise does that necessitate and when, when you engage in partnerships like that with the World Bank or perhaps with, with other banks like the African Development Bank? You know, we cannot uh, co-mingle, you know, resources, you know, because of, uh, you know, the way, you know, our institutions, you know, operate. You know, they would be charging interest where we will not be charging, you know, interest, you know, on the lendings, you know, we do. So therefore, you know, we, um, uh, as an Islamic uh, institution, we are asset-based. We need to have a distinct um, asset that we are financing. If it is a road project, you know, we must know it will be, will be from uh, point A to B. That will be financed uh, exclusively by the bank. So that at least uh, there will not be like uh, point A to B is jointly financed, you know, together with resources from uh, the Islamic Development Bank, resources, you know, from the African Development Bank put together to finance, you know, that stretch, you know, from point A to B. If it is a, um, a stretch, you know, uh, point, point A to B, we can break it down and, uh, you know, make it from uh, 
point A to B1 and B1 you know, to, you know, to B, whereby each one will have their distinct portion you know, to finance. So please give me um, some examples of projects uh, on the African continent and perhaps one or two in, in the Middle East that are demonstrative of you know, the work that you do, perhaps projects citizens on the continent and perhaps in the Middle East weren't even aware that you had a hand in. Oh, yes, there, there are numerous you know, projects in Africa, the Middle East, and in Asia. In Africa, for instance, you know, we have uh, participated in the financing of uh, the Dorale port you know, in, uh, in uh, Djibouti. You know, uh, this is a major you know, uh, port uh, project you know, that uh, the bank has financed you know, on the PPP in uh, Djibouti. We have, uh, and PPP, of course, being public-private partnership, yes? Exactly. With the private sector involvement and the government of Djibouti, uh, together with uh, ISDB financing. Um, uh, we've in, in, in Jordan also, you know, there is an airport at the Queen Alia International Airport. You know, the ISDB has been involved, you know, in the f- financing of uh, uh, that airport. You know, together with uh, several uh, roads uh, projects, I think... You know, in on the African, you know, continent, you know, there is a road uh, from Arlit, you know, to Asamaka, you know, in Niger, linking Niger, you know, with uh, Algeria. This is financed, you know, by uh, by the Islamic Development Bank. In Senegal, for instance, uh, the new uh, international, you know, airport has, you know, Islamic Development Bank financing, together with uh, numerous other projects, you know, in the education sector, in the health sector, in uh, Uganda, you know, we uh, recently financed uh, the uh, rebuilding of uh, the Mulago Hospital, particularly the uh, maternity wing of the hospital, where before the IDB financing, you know, it was a very bad situation in the hospital where patients, you know, uh, women in labor would be lying on the floor, you know, delivering their babies, etc. So this is a complete change in the lives of the people of uh, Uganda. So please give me a sense of some of the broader trends around public-private partnerships that you're observing and perhaps some of the innovation your bank is looking to participate in or massage into the system, as it were, because clearly, at least as far as I can tell, that has to be the future of what sustainable collaboration needs to look like uh, as far as financing important projects. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, we are encouraging public-private uh, partnership uh, as a way um, forward, you know, way into the future, in the sense that uh, we are trying to get, uh, you know, the involvement of the private sector in financing, you know, development. And uh, nowadays, uh, we are seeing a growing trend, uh, particularly in Africa, in the area of uh, transport, you know, road uh, construction, whereby, you know, um, uh, motorways are built, you know, using, you know, public-private partnership. Airports are built, you know, using private-private partnership. And uh, this is extending to some extent even in the education uh, sector where public and the private sector come together to finance, you know, education projects. Do you, do you play a facilitation role in that context? We do play a facilitation role uh, in, that, in that context and uh, we, are, we are quite excited whenever we uh, see opportunities like this and uh, we try to encourage that a lot, you know, to expand into other areas, you know, particularly the social sector education and health. 
So in the context of the work you do, what percentage of the nations that are member states of your organization are fragile states? And what is the thinking around your approach? Or is, is there perhaps a different strategic approach to development in those spaces versus perhaps the more affluent member states? Yes, we think about uh, 30% of our member countries you know, are in a fragile uh, situation. And uh, we currently trying to develop our policy in how to deal with uh, some of uh, the severe um, uh, affected uh, you know, countries, those in more distressed you know, situation. So generally, um, uh, being fragile does not uh, kind of uh, make us you know, move away from those countries. But we believe, you know, as a philosophy, those countries need us most because of that uh, circumstances of fragility. We're taking a quick break to tell you a little more about Spark, the presenting sponsor of the series. Spark is a Dutch NGO with a difference. Since being founded by two Dutch students in the 1990s to stem the degradation of higher education in the Balkans, the organization has grown to deliver expert services in 15 of the world's most vulnerable countries, including Libya, Liberia and Syria. Spark bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship by providing scholarships to displaced people, catalyzing student participation through civic leadership, and providing entrepreneurs with the support they need to succeed. To learn more about how Spark is rebuilding futures through vocational education and SME growth programs in the Middle East, as well as North and Sub-Saharan Africa, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. And in the second half of this episode, I speak with the Islamic Development Bank's Lead Fragility and Resilience Specialist. Among other things, we chat about how the institution frames the notion of fragility in terms of developing and implementing constructive policy that delivers real value to member countries chasing economic growth. Take a listen. Uh, I am Mohammed Al-Hadi, a Lead Fragility and uh, Resilience Specialist in Islamic Development Bank. And uh, I work on the area of fragility and resilience and uh, develop uh, policies of the bank, how to engage in this area uh, in the situations of fragility and where we can build resilience in our member countries. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, sir. Thank you very much. Perhaps let's start with how you frame fragility. I've learned that, of course, the, the ISDB has many members. Um, some of those members are established, perhaps more advanced, more affluent nations. Others, not so. Others you would deem, by your definition, fragile. What is your filter for determining fragility or your framework for determining fragility? And how does that definition impact your strategy in pursuing development goals for those particular members? I want to first declare that we don't categorize any country as fragile country. We uh, see fragility is a situation, it's not a state. Uh, even those stable states which are much developed, they have some pockets of fragility. So it is a situation. Uh, in if you see the literature of international literature about fragility, you will find that the World Bank has a harmonized list every year, internal harmonized list, in which the last list they categorize about 36 of the world uh, countries as fragile countries, and from those, 19 are our member countries. 
that's half. The OECD as well uh, produce a state of fragility report every year. Last year, they, or this year, they uh, categorized about 56, member, 56 countries in the world as fragile, fragile countries. 29 of them are from our member countries. We don't have a list. But if you look at the situations in our member countries, you find some who have severe situations of fragility and some who has no fragility and some who have some uh, pockets of fragility. So fragility is when the community, nation and state are not able to cope with the shocks and crisis and there are many elements of course one of the society is not inclusive there is tensions between the segments of the societies they cannot cope with the crisis whether they are man-made or natural uh, made so these are what we say categorically fragile situations and they need some intervention some different interventions because the bank is established to serve or to work with the nations with the states with the governments not with the directly with the community, the bank didn't have before a policy on how to intervene in fragile situation, especially where there's no state or where there's no government to deal with. So it was working through NGOs, through, I, I don't say that it was not working in a fragile situation. It has provided an assistance to a long list of countries. Those countries some of them are member countries, some of them are non-member countries. Communities like Haiti, still uh, the bank provided a lot of help, of assistance. But now the bank recognized that this is a big issue it has to deal with. And that's why in the new transformation which took place last year, it established new department which is called Resilience and Social Development. Within this, we have to deal, uh, where I, that's where I work, we're dealing with climate change, we're dealing with empowering women and youth, we're dealing with fragility and post-conflict, we're dealing with engagement with the NGOs and civil societies, all these areas, disaster management. So this area was overlooked before, but now there is a focus on it because of the situation of the, some of the member countries. I see that you take a great care in framing these definitions. I sense that you are aware of the implications of not being as careful about those definitions and pronouncements of this nature. What is the importance in your view? Because at the end of the day, the bank exists to do business. What are the implications in a practical sense, but also perhaps in an ideological sense of getting definitions wrong or incorrect? Uh, when you categorize a country as fragile, there are consequences the bank will not give any loans. International um, uh, donor organizations also will not deal with them because they are risk averse. When you are a development bank, you avoid risks for your finance. You need to put your money where it is safe. It can come back. You don't put your money where it is fragile. And that is the problem of even World Bank, African Development Bank, Asian Development Bank, Islamic Development Bank, we look for a safe area. So when you are going to work with a country which is categorized as fragile, 
you avoid your, to put your money, that's the consequence of which will take place. It's straight away when we categorize countries as fragile. But, but we say it is fragile situations, not country. And when you are saying situations, that means everywhere can be situation of fragility, pocket of fragility, some area. For example, some of well-developed uh, countries, they have still some, not just economical crisis, some uh, militias who are fighting against the state. And in that particular place, it is fragility situation. I really like the distinctions that you are, you are alluding to here because countries like South Africa, where I live, Zimbabwe, where I'm from, Nigeria, the, the continent's largest economy, I think we lose a lot when the debate becomes binary. And I suppose my question is, what goes into the risk profiling of a continent as diverse and as large as, as, as Africa and countries as complex as Kenya and Nigeria and Sierra Leone and, you know, speak to some of the pragmatic business thinking from a risk profiling standpoint that you might apply in a way that we, I am certain the World Bank, for instance, would not, would not do. When there is a government established in the country, we deal with it as a normal country. When the government collapses, there's no government, there's not uh, accountable uh, authority in the country, then we cannot deal with that country. Then we do through uh, the local community, local NGOs, uh, in order to build resilience for these countries. But you don't write off relations? No, no, at all. We don't write off relations. This uh, organization is found by those countries. And some of now, some of founders of this organization are in crisis and uh, maybe in conflict. Maybe th some of them do not have a, a recognized uh, institutions or capable institutions to run the, the country. But still we work with them. We are obliged to work with them. So your mandate seems quite broad and I think extends far beyond the dollars and cents of you know, making a, a good deal or return on investment. We don't look actually at return only and we don't impose any policies on the country. We don't interfere in the political. When we give loan, we give loan without any condition. It is just the uh, uh, economical loan conditions that w how we, this money can come back, how we can uh, the country can repay this uh, amount of money, and how successful this project is. But we we, we don't look at what type of uh, government is this. We don't impose any type of values and say, okay, we, if you don't do this, we we don't give you so and so. They are member countries. They have the right to take the loans as long as they exist. You know, speak to the competitive landscape around global finance, your place in it, and competitors who are looking to to comply with the religious requirements that your organization currently espouses. Our organization was established since 1975. It is about 40-something uh, years now. And it started from that time to advocate for the Islamic finance or Sharia compliance finance and it is actually the producer of this uh, finance. We have a research and, uh, and study center inside the bank which is separate entity and it mainly it's working on 
promoting this uh, uh, product. And all what other uh, banks are talking about, it's our product. You're, you're winning as they grow and as they come online as well. Exactly. We, we develop, we advance the research on this area. We have dedicated research on this area. We present Islamic finance of all, all types and we implement in our, in our work, in our daily work. So we have this as an established principle. It's based on solidarity. We don't give loans just to get money, to get uh, uh, some benefit or profit. We give them as solidarity to our member countries. What, what is your strategic approach to, to working around nations that are working their way out of issues, whether they're environmental, political, or otherwise? We are developing uh, a new policy for the bank on how to engage in fragile situations, is a fragility and resilience policy, which is still undergoing the revision and uh, consultation with member countries until it is approved. We are still discussing it, but mainly we are uh, working on four areas. One is investing on uh, prevention, to work on preventing the fragility to happen. Those countries who uh, cannot categorize as collapse, but still they have some crises, whether they're economic or political or uh, environmental or societal, those we invest in prevention. And then we uh, work on linking the de uh, relief to development in the countries who are in conflict. And those who are recovering from conflict, we work on the recovery mechanism on how to strengthen the resilience of this country, uh, building institutions, bringing the uh, community together, enhancing their, their interlinkage and uh, promoting the youth employability, women empowerment and all this area. Then the other one we are looking also is how we will finance these three areas, where we get the money from. The money can come from the bank itself because you cannot give loan to a country who is in conflict or yet recovering from the conflict. In this time, you need to give grants, and that's what we do. We are looking from our own pocket of balance sheet resources, from our uh, member countries, philanthropists, from partnership with the international uh, NGOs, international community, international M M MDPs. So those, we look to open pools and funds to bring together all the uh, uh, international community to put their money there and we can help the, these countries. What mistakes do you think the development agendas and perhaps intervention approaches popularized by the global north and, and, and the west, what, what would you point to as mistakes they've made that you would be looking to avoid as you create this policy and, and uh, induct it? I don't want to point uh, to mistakes for, of others. <laughs> uh, that, that's not my role. You want to be kind. Yeah, <laughs> not being kind, but uh, we, we don't want to uh, point fing fingers to others, say they, they did some mistake. When you work, you do mistakes. That is a sign of you, that you, do, you did something. If you don't do anything, no one will say you did mistake. So at least we have to praise 
them for, from their intention of serving these people. But we cannot say, you did mistake, hi. <laughs> when we are uh, developing this policy, we're reviewing all the policies of other uh, MDBs and we will learn from them what is working because we are trying to choose the best practices, the best lessons learned and to avoid what mistakes have been done and to look for the best ways and methods used to intervene in these countries. But we cannot say this MDB or that MDB did that mistake. And what would you say is the learning that you've made as a bank, perhaps, in trying to craft a way forward? And let's not call it a mistake, but perhaps a misstep or a learning that you iterated your way towards maybe something in the recent past or something that has evolved over time. I think one of the most important things is when you're looking at fragility, you don't look at investing from your own pocket because your own pocket will not uh, cover everything. So that's why you have to look to the external and internal resources. When I say internal, it's not only within the bank, but even within the uh, fragile situations of the country which is in conflict itself or recovering from conflict, it has its own resource. We have to uh, look at these resources as well to get them to work, to build, to rebuild the country. And also from the donors who, who, do, who do not want anything uh, back, just grants, like the philanthropists. We have many philanthropists in our region. Maybe that is what is no, not known more in the world. But in the GCC, we have a lot of uh, philanthropists who are willing to solve these uh, issues. And uh, because of the uh, comparative advantage of the bank and the trust it has in, in its community, they are willing to entrust it with their money. So that's where we are looking for getting most of the resources. It sounds like there's a spirit of collaboration perhaps that hasn't existed in this way before. Uh, yes, actually, because we have a program which is called Fa'al Khair. Fa'al Khair in Arabic is philanthropist. And it has about billion or more dollars from only one person, one philanthropist, who dedicated his money to solve the uh, most crisis areas in Somalia, uh, Bangladesh, Niger, and uh, I was uh, a coordinator of one of these projects which was intending to uh, drill boreholes, deep boreholes in Somalia and building schools in Somalia. And in one stage, when we got stuck in, uh, in the funding, we went to the local, uh, local business in Somalia and they covered the rest of the, pro uh, the program. So this is an experience that you can blend the uh, resource, you can use the internal resources and you, there is internal resource, they're willing to serve their country, but you have to get a proper way to approach them. So I have a final question, which is about technology. They're very topical technologies that are democratizing finance. And I'd like to know how you think about them as a bank, perhaps uh, specific to fragile states. There are people who point to these technologies as potential solutions in countries that might not otherwise rise as quickly or as uh, efficiently as they could or should. The implication, of course, is that they might be a disruption to the way things have been done prior. And, and of course, there are people who, who believe in, you know, and hope for an, an entire and, and wholesale disruption of, of global finance as it currently stands. I'm curious about how you frame 
these debates and how you think about them at, at the bank and perhaps for yourself? The bank is entering in a digital era. We, we are uh, digitizing all our process internally and we are looking to bring digital uh, products as well because we look that is the future. We know, especially in conflict countries, conflict areas, they really have prospered in this uh, fintech. For example, in Somalia, people do not use notes, money, as to exchange for products. They use digital. All their money is in their, in their mobile, the small mobile, with text message, they exchange everything. A lady who is selling the tomato on the street, in the market, she doesn't have notes, she doesn't have money. She's using and exchanging money with others through this technology. Uh, they transfer money from all over the world, about two and a half billion every year is going to Somalia through this technology. So any uh, family in a rural area, very remote area where no one can, can go just because they have a mobile, not even internet, they can receive money straight away from everywhere in the world. This is what remittance companies work on and is working for years now, more than 10 years now in, in Somalia. If you go in Somalia, you will be fascinated about what is going on here. It is, it is not normal banking <laughs> system. It's not, people are not holding notes in their hands. They are exchanging money. Just, I, I was in Somalia in Mogadishu. Someone in Hargeisa called me and said, Oh, sorry, uh, I don't have money. And I, I, I know him. Uh, can you send me $100, please? In normal life, you have to send this through bank. Through, but this, in Somalia, you just text and he has it in second. So this is the future. Do you see yourselves as part of that future or do you see that future disrupting your business? Not actually, it is not disrupting our business. We, we don't deal with uh, individuals. We, we deal with, we're not as normal banks who transfer money. We are development banks. So development bank doesn't transfer money from one. It's, when it is like that, it's easier for us. <laughs> we avoid the fees. <laughs> okay, so I, I hear what you're saying. Basically, you're not a retail bank. Um, you don't interact with the market the way some of the large brands of the world do. But I do take your sense, which is these technologies are here and we can't ignore them. Yeah, of course. These technologies are going to uh, advance more and make the transactions easier and make the life easier for me and for the bank. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the African Tech Roundup. Thank you very much. Okay.